Welcome to the Elite HRV Podcast, where experts share their experience using heart rate variability and other biomarkers to optimize health and human performance. Hey folks, Jason Moore here. I'm excited to share another great episode of the Elite HRV podcast with you. We've been so fortunate to have amazing guests on the show already, and today is no different. Um, Today we go deep into blood glucose, ketones, ketogenic diets, and of course how all of that relates back to health, performance, and heart rate variability. Alessandro Ferretti is our guest A quick bit about him, he's an Italian that enjoys living in the beautiful UK countryside with his family, and he also competes at a very high level in karate and I believe judo as well. He's basically a super intelligent fat-burning machine that is constantly monitoring a handful of biomarkers, and he's always tweaking or experimenting with some sort of health or performance marker, so he fits right in in our data nerd community here. And, uh, you know, speaking of community, for those listening in from the United States, happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a holiday that involves stuffing our faces, of course, and it's the perfect time to learn about blood glucose management. (laughs) So, um, and in the spirit of giving thanks, I'd like to say that I am truly grateful for the experts who take time to share their knowledge on this show and for the thousands of you that have already downloaded, listened, and started reviewing the show in these critical early weeks. Um, We've just been launched for a couple of weeks and and it's very flattering, and uh, we're very honored to have so much feedback, um, positive feedback. And and so to, to Michael, Francisco, Jennifer, Nicholas, Elisa, Amanda, Dwight, Alexander, and Stefan, and many more, thank you for your kind messages and emails regarding the show. And, of course, sticking those kind messages over on iTunes also helps tremendously as well. Uh, But as long as the show is useful to you, we will do our best to keep publishing new episodes. And speaking of episodes, back to this episode. Uh, What are we covering today? Alessandro and I talk 24-7 HRV, ketone, and glucose monitoring. So that's like continuous all-day monitoring. Food sensitivity testing with heart rate variability. um, And kind of percent change thresholds to look for with uh, for identifying offending foods Uh, correlations between blood glucose and hrv ideal ketone thresholds for exercise and training Um, the dangers of doing ketogenic diet incorrectly how to become fat adapted Um, the breath versus blood versus urine ketone discussion because there's many ways to measure ketone activity uh, and, a whole, and a whole lot more. But uh, before we dive in, I will warn you, we go deep into the weeds on this episode. Uh, we do our best to explain and recap the topics. But if there's anything that you don't quite understand, just leave a comment on the show notes and we'll be happy to explain that. And I mentioned it a couple times throughout the episode, EliteHRV.com slash podcast. You'll find the show notes and everything over there. So with that, let's dive in. Welcome to the show, Alessandro. Thanks for joining us. Uh, very much my pleasure. 
I believe we originally connected because someone was tweeting about all of the crazy things that they were learning in one of your live presentations. And I thought, I have to reach out to this guy and see what's going on here. Um, so it was kind of nice to find out when I reached out that you'd already come across our app in the past and were also a generous and very easy to talk to guy on top of doing some really fantastic research. So since then, whenever we've spoken, you've often been on your way to give a lecture or presentation or consult with some group or another. Uh, could you give us a quick rundown of what it is that you do? Um, yeah, sure. Um, I primarily I'm focusing on research right now. So I'm just trying to understand, have a better understanding of correlations between different variables. So I am a nutritionist um, with interest in performance and mainly metabolic diseases. So I decided a few years ago to start to expand in that specific area um, and through recommendations of patients um, really trying to apply all my my learning so uh, we don't sell anything we don't sell tests we don't sell apps we don't sell vitamins or minerals it's primarily a you know a research companies and companies will hire my company or myself in order to deliver uh, findings and deliver um, part of my work so in a nutshell is is that I I also <clears throat> embarked in a few projects um, and there is a new one which is really exciting as well uh, which is really looking for a whole month so four weeks length on an n equals six um, the effects on low carbohydrate high fat diet well actually I should say more ketogenic diet not necessarily always high fat um, where we will track HIV HR uh, we'll track ketones, breath and blood, glucose ongoingly, so we'll have sensors implanted. Me personally, I have two sensors uh, implanted to actually compare different pieces of kit and hardwares and, and softwares um, and really wanting to refine these correlations. Because well, there's been so many hypotheses about it, but actually no group of individuals have tested with all of these variables. So... Um, um, that that's really exciting. Very exciting indeed. So you'll be monitoring glucose, ketones, and HRV 24-7 for an entire month with six individuals on a ketogenic diet. And this is a basically a perfect intro into this conversation because, as you mentioned, nobody has done this type of research before, or at least there's no public knowledge of such an experiment. Um, but... Both, so both myself and the folks listening will be pretty interested in hearing about the results of that. Um, so definitely keep us posted. Um, so anyways, on top of being a human guinea pig, you dabble with the martial arts as well, don't you? Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> world world champion, right? No. <laughs> My latest performance was appalling. <laughs> I'm sure it's all relative, but, um, you know, one of the things I love about you, Alessandro, is that you have a lot of energy, you walk the walk, and when you talk about wanting to increase performance, you're talking about for yourself as well, not not just for some yeah. people that you've never met. So 
you have this really interesting background um, coming from the nutrition side and being really experienced with um, blood glucose monitoring, ketones, and heart rate variability. Um, you know, have you seen any kind of general relationships between blood glucose and HRV specifically? Yes, generally um, there has been a few uh, good research projects uh, that I've, I've, I've done that pointed towards looking at this correlation being a positive correlation. I wasn't able to uh, extrapolate p-values or you know r-values because um, one of these devices actually doesn't allow the extrapolation of raw data. So I had to more use like a visual kind of thing. However, even in a snapshot reading, uh, definitely there is a trend. So for example, when there are instances where the glucose is elevated or elevated or slightly more elevated compared to baseline, generally there is an association with a lower HIV. Now, that seems to be more connected to inflammatory response, not just sympathetic activation. So if we consider uh, sympathetic activation, so sometimes someone can have a mild sympathetic activation without affecting the glucose, but if inflammation, so recovering from training or having eaten certain types of foods or whatever that may be, then when the HRV is down and in a snapshot management someone takes a blood reading, uh, then generally, yes, there is a correlation. Interesting. So a sympathetic response in combination with an increase in inflammation may cause a decrease in HRV and increase in blood glucose. Um, have you seen any correlations with ketones as well? Um, yes. I mean, it's not as clear. So I'm not as certain on the results. Um get to a certain degree of inflammatory response, then because one of the areas of research I, I am focusing on is the application of uh, ketogenic diet or fat adaptation for sport and performance, um, when we measure ketones, and there is a substantial level of inflammatory response, generally speaking, the ketones are lower. Given the same macro given the same type of training, given, you know, so when we maintain the variables of the same, you can artificially try to get higher level of ketones, which is normally used in, in, in a medical uh, scenario for application of ketogenic diet, so epilepsy, cancer, and etc., etc. But <laughs> taking this away from that medical aspect, then... The correlation is not as clear, but definitely there is. We don't know if is the ketones are low because it's the high glucose. We don't know if it's the inflammation that kicks you, in a way, out of uh, ketosis or if it's a stress response. Um, but definitely th there are some fluctuation trending down. Great. So there will be plenty to learn from your 24-7 uh, multivariate monitoring project. Um, so let's take a step back. I'd like to ask you some more general questions about blood glucose and ketone monitoring in general. Um, what does it typically mean 
when your fasted or resting blood glucose is elevated above normal values? Okay, so um, I think the first thing I would want to clarify is the definition of normal. So a couple of years ago, no, three years ago now, uh, my glucose was still within normal, uh, which would be my 5.6. That will equate to 100, 105 milligrams per deciliter. Um, Yet fasting at that level for me is already, you know, starting to ring a few alarm bells because depending upon the lifestyle, then the very same glucose level can be considered totally normal or can be considered actually alarming. So with my lifestyle at the time, I was training, good physical activity, uh, eating well, organic food, good macro ratio in a kind of paleo style with some carbs kind of thing, um, lots of fish, that level of glucose was still normal but it was not justified i couldn't improve that much in my life that would have got that down to you know mid 80s or my low fives and mid fours so given a healthy level of glucose which for me are between four and five so that would be your 70 90 um, I, I would classify anything that is one, one and a half millimolar higher than the top figure, um, which will be 18 milligrams per deciliter higher than uh, US, for example, milligram per deciliter, um, generally speaking, would correspond to some degree of either um, inflammatory response, sympathetic activation, or <laughs> in whichever way we want to see it, some form of glucocorticoid activation. And that will have an impact on how well the glucose is disposed from the actual blood. I mean, fasting glucose level can also be affected by something called dawn phenomena uh, or Smolgi effect. And this can have only the fasting glucose level that is elevated, but within an hour, an hour and a half, that goes back to normal. That's a slightly different scenario. But if someone has ongoingly, uh, when fasting, uh, you know, either after a night's sleep or in between meals, a slightly elevated glucose, then there is some form of insulin resistance. Normal insulin resistance, uh, can be associated very often to some form of inflammatory response or poor, poor cellular efficiency, let's call it. Okay, just to make sure that the listeners and I are all on the same page with you, uh, in general, you don't want your fasted morning glucose levels to be excessively high and an upper limit that may be considered, quote, normal, so to speak, is around 5.6 millimoles per liter in your measurement system or around 100 milligrams per deciliter in the U.S. Um, But actually, in your opinion, this is unjustifiably high and it should actually be between more like 4 to 5 millimoles 
or between 70 to 90 milligrams per deciliter here. Um, and if the fasted levels are actually maybe 10 to 20% higher than those ranges that you recommend, uh, it may actually indicate an excess of inflammation or sympathetic activation or could even be indicative of some form of insulin resistance. Um, so I just wanted to get all that kind of summarized. Um, so what would you say to someone who may be fit or even an athlete, but the fasted morning glucose levels are above the ranges that you just mentioned? Um, ideally, you want, you want, so if they track their HRV daily and they track their glucose daily, uh, that snapshot over a period of time can give them a trend. Obviously, if you measure your glucose once a week, then it's a little bit like in your HRV course, which I, you know, I found brilliant, really. Um, if someone takes a snapshot, there are so many variables to take in consideration, but the trend is very weak. So I suggest to people to try to measure the glucose under normal parameter uh, or parameters in their lives and over a period of one or two weeks. And then we have a much, much better understanding of what are the changes. Ideally, we want to track it ongoingly. Um, however, given that, then we would have a much better insight on the actual person. So if an athlete has an elevated fasting glucose level, then first question is, okay, how was your day yesterday? What did you eat? Did you eat too late? before you went to bed? Did you have, I don't know, any alcohol, any inflammatory food? Did you have a really hard session, session training the day before? So this morning my glucose was elevated for me um, at 4.9, which is your just sub 90. Um, and it was a substantial 15 points above normal. My HRV was down and etc. because yesterday I had quite two heavy training sessions in a row and you know that's pretty normal so for me today is totally justified whereas at times we are starting to see that other variables not only training can impact that and what is really alarming is the amount of athletes that are not aware of it but because they spend most of their times in sympathetic activation due to training or under recovery or overtraining, then their glucose keeps creeping up all the time and eventually they can have substantial dysfunctions in the way how their body actually uses substrate for energy and potentially affecting going towards mild type 2 diabetics. And to relate that to the performance side, not only are we talking about this affecting health, but this can also potentially affect an athlete's ability to use glucose efficiently as fuel for their athletic performance. Yeah, and what to to cap that? Um, eventually, when they start exercising, the problem is not as noticeable because obviously through activation of gluts within the cells then the glucose is dragged in whichever way you know it, it's 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 the, the, the inflammatory response may not be 
as noticeable as it is at rest, because obviously being at rest, we remove the variable of having to use and manufacture energy forcefully. But at rest is a brilliant okay. market because we then have an, an understanding of what's actually happening in the body. So and just to put this in numbers, uh, this year alone, three colleagues of mine with a very good degree of health exercising they thought correctly recovering they thought correctly all three of them that came to see me had substantially elevated glucose level and it was above 110 fasting the diet was wow. pseudo paleo one of them was attempting to be ketogenic but got completely wrong <laughs> and that was quite dangerous because <laughs> ended up with really high blood lipids not high not high healthy high um actually unhealthy high <laughs> so it, it's it's wow. yeah i mean tim noakes uh, professor tim noakes some time ago uh, mentioned he was exercising his way to diabetes. Well, th th there is an element of truth in that statement that is applicable to these three colleagues of mine. That's powerful. And so um, real quick before we dive into more detail, um, when you mentioned forming this uh, blood glucose baseline, you know, like you said, what you talk about in heart rate variability, uh, when you're taking HRV snapshots, that the best time to do it is in the morning before you really do anything else um, because that kind of eliminates a lot of the variables that potentially could occur. And, uh, and then also getting uh, several samples per week greatly increases your confidence that you're actually capturing your true baseline. Um, so is that the same time that you should like, maybe what I, what I've done in the past is I measure my HRV and then pretty much immediately afterwards, I also measure my blood glucose in the morning. Um, is that a good way to get that baseline? Yeah, precisely. Um, I, I covered this, uh, in, uh, on, on, on my website, I have few videos, uh, just, just, just there that are all free and, you know, people can you know, just uh, watch them. And um, the, the, the website is my full name, alessandroferretti.co.uk, when I'm going through, um, you know, when, to, when I consider meaningful uh, or some of the times in which I consider to, you know, take glucose readings. And I, I like to do as soon as you wake up and then within an hour, well, after an hour, an hour and a half after you woke up. Obviously, still fasted. Still fasted, okay. Yeah, because then you also have an effect uh, on glucocorticoid activation because the, the, the first part, so as soon as we release cortisol, interestingly enough, if it's a healthy response, cortisol will dampen the inflammatory response and seemingly reduces the uh, blood glucose levels. Whereas an excessive activation of glucocorticoid then is going to start in gluconeogenesis and more of the inflammatory response, insulin resistance. So there is a difference between the mild normal peak of cortisol versus a very acute or chronic level of cortisol and cortisol resistance. So... Generally speaking, even if someone has a slight 
elevated glucose level, but within an hour, an hour and a half, is actually back to a healthy level, to a healthy range, then it's a slightly different problem. Then I will actually look, what is the inflammatory response during the night? Is the liver starting to go into gluconeogenesis during the night because it cannot maintain a healthy glucose level? Um, what is the sleep like? Did they see actually that kind of uh, problem within the sleep? Did they, f you know, did they feel it? How do they feel in the morning? And then starting to correlate that through HRV and what has happened the previous day. So, in a way, in the same way as you have suggested in your course to track HRV and start to track subjective data or even other data, you can apply pretty much the same methodology in relation to glucose or ketones. So in my own experimentation, I've used the Precision Extra and other kind of finger prick style monitors that are typically targeted to folks with diabetes and can be found at like many stores. Um, do you have any super fancy special devices that you use to track blood glucose or are you using the same devices kind of as the rest of us? Yeah, yeah, you can, you, you can, you can, you can use that. Um, the, I've done quite a few experiments on the ongoing glucose monitoring system. Um, not quite as reflective of blood, but is great to reflect trends. So uh, I've noticed there was a difference, nearly one whole millimolar, which is 18 milligrams of deciliter, um, because it measures the glucose concentration under the skin, and then they work out, given that, what an estimate of what is in the blood. Well, in my case, whatever they measured was giving a reading that was higher of about one millimolar, which is a lot. Um, however, the trends were actually very good. So it was always high. It wasn't going up and down. Okay, so okay. The, the error was constant. So is either a conversion reading algorithm or calibration error, I don't know. However, even a, 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 a glucose monitor from the local pharmacy can be uh, very useful as a snapshot as long as they don't take it, I don't know, right in the middle of the meal. Is it going up? Is it surely, you know, <laughs> there, there, there has to be some criteria to do that. <laughs> um, so, yeah. General, you know, AccuCheck or Abbott or, you know, th th these are all brands that, you know, they would, they would be, you know, just giving a good indication of where the glucose is. Great. Thank you. And what, uh, um, you know, you mentioned links to your site and some videos and, and we've talked about uh, some of these monitors and I'll put links to these all in the show notes of this so that people can find your website uh, easily from the podcast notes and also find uh, those videos and some links to um, blood glucose monitors if people are interested in doing that. And just to summarize as well, you you mentioned that the continuous monitor that's uh, based on the blood glucose levels under the skin in our measurement could be up to 18 points different from what your blood 
measurement was, but that it appears to be at least that the trends kind of hold the same. Yeah, precisely. So if you're interested in seeing fluctuation in relation to uh, food, stress response, work, exercise, whatever, is still good. You just need to take into account for that error. At least the error is constant. And it varies between individual and individual. So with me, it was a very strong error. With someone else, it was absolutely bang on. Excellent. So um, let's shift gears a bit and talk ketones. I believe I have a pretty good understanding of the subject, uh, especially after several discussions with you, but I believe that many folks still couch the ketogenic diet as simply an ultra-low-carb diet, and I know that many of the listeners probably are beyond that, but um, you know, just in case, let's, let's start there, and if you look at the word ketogenic itself, I believe it's actually more about generating ketones than it is about actually eliminating other things though reducing carbohydrates and other substrates do contribute to ketogenesis Um, so how would you describe a ketogenic diet or a keto adapted diet which is a term that i've heard you use before how would you describe those yeah sure i as, as in anything, different people have slightly different interpretation of it. So the first distinction to make is a low-carb diet and a ketogenic diet. Low-carb diet, it can be a low-carb diet without the person actually and constantly being in ketosis. That may have certain benefits or for sure has some benefit for... Uh, certain group of people um, that is one thing but they don't necessarily have to be uh, ketogenic ketogenesis uh, is a process of metabolism where the body produces a certain level of ketones and that is what is called ketogenic diet I like I personally like to refer to a body that constantly uses a higher degree of fat versus using glucose as fat adapted. So it's all okay. a bit of a gray area. You know, some people say, okay, what's the difference between ketogenic diet and fat adapted? Where, where do I know that I'm fat adapted? Well, generally speaking, you have certain physiological behaviors and physiological signatures that you can actually see that the body preferentially uses fat as the main source of fuel. I mean, you can go all the way and do tests and, you you know, you can take it very far. However, normally ketogenic diet, they have, they they were born as a medical application, not only for weight loss, but also more for epilepsy and cancer. These people require to have a constantly raised level of ketones in order to ripen the benefit of these ketones in these specific medical scenarios. Then we started with the sports and performance and more of the kind of weight loss in, in which scenarios what you're really aiming at is not to have high level of blood ketones 
but actually to use fats and ketones as a primary form of fuel. So it doesn't really matter if you accumulate it in your blood, but what really matters is that the body is using them very, very efficiently for whatever is the purpose. Most of the times is sport performance. So I think there is a lot of confusion and hence, hence I, I, I stated this is how I see it, this is how I refer to it. But I'm sure that other people may have slightly different variations. Uh, but to recap, low fat, sorry, low carb is one type of diet, uh, which does not necessarily mean it's ketogenic. A ketogenic diet is aiming for medical purposes, is aiming to have high level of ketones in the blood constantly i.e. epilepsy, cancer, and etc. in support of this disease. I'm not saying it's curative. Um, and then you have fat adaptation, most likely to happen in long-distance athletes or athletes in general in some other cases, where the body preferentially uses fat as the main source of fuels, where normally we'll see slightly less level of blood ketones and perhaps higher level of breath ketones. Okay, so that makes a lot of sense. Outside of specific medical reasons, the goal is not to have elevated blood glucose or elevated blood ketones. The goal is to have the right amount of substrate in the blood, whether ketones or glucose, for the task at hand, and then to be able to efficiently utilize that substrate. Uh, so just like we don't want blood glucose to be unnecessarily high, are there toxic levels of blood ketones to avoid as well? Now a quick word about our sponsor, hrvcourse.com. If you're looking to take your usage of heart rate variability to the next level, check out the educational video courses over at hrvcourse.com. I'm one of the contributing instructors, and so are some of the experts you've heard on this podcast. Don't forget, listeners of this podcast get a 10% discount on your first course using discount code ELITEPODCAST. Courses are only open for enrollment at certain times of the year, so check it out today at hrvcourse.com. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there is a process called ketoacidosis, uh, but normally ketoacidosis also will involve high level of glucose at the same time. So in, in the utmost vast majority of cases, that is when type 1 diabetics misjudge insulin and they end up both with elevated glucose and elevated ketones. And I'm talking over 10 millimolar or 12 millimolar. I can't remember on top of my head what is the exactly cutoff point, but it's 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 pretty high. So generally speaking, we we yeah, this is when you may not actually you know be healthy at all in that specific moment in time. Um, if the glucose is already elevated and you know the ketones are really high and they are type 1, ideally they need to get rid of the glucose and just by reducing the glucose then you know they, they, they remove the acidosis kind of um, event. Um, I have not yet seen a single person entering ketoacidosis that is not a type 1 diabetic. 
So can this be applicable mm-hmm. to member of the public? We need to be cautious about it. Um, yet amongst me and colleagues, I have not encountered one yet. Wow. Okay. And interesting. So do you, what do you use typically to measure ketones? I know you mentioned breath and blood. Uh, maybe we could talk about a couple of the different devices and when it makes sense to use which ones. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the ketones are, generally speaking, manufactured in a one-to-one ratio between acetoacetate and uh, beta-hydroxybutyrate. Beta-hydroxybutyrate is the one that you measure uh, via uh, finger prick um, with, with, with the monitor. Uh, I mentioned earlier the Abbott, Abbott, the precision extra in the US and the NEO here in the UK, uh, measure both glucose and ketones, hence that's what I want to use. Um, the beta drug, so the two different ketones, there are three, but these are the two that I'm just speaking about it for a second. The, the beta hydroxybutyrate seems to be reflective of a, an accumulation within blood. I mean, once upon a time, I call it as a storage. That is not technically correct. However, um, sometimes the blood, it is my personal belief that acts as a buffer. So, for example, before training, I want to see that in the region of the two millimolar. So, in a way, can be ready to be used. Acetoacetate degrades to breath into acetone. So, we can't really measure efficiently acetoacetate because the urine test in fat-adapted people is not actually reflective very well of the status but through breath we can detect what is the usage the exhausted level of ketones especially acetoacetate because acetoacetate goes into acetone and that is exhaled through the lungs so being the ratio of production one to one they these acetoacetate and beta hydroxybutyrate they have uh, let's say health benefits and properties and some of them are actually slightly different so for example the brain preferentially would use beta hydroxybutyrate um, whereas acetoacetate has other functions so personally for someone that is fat adapted you want i i would focus on the breath to actually see how this how how the ketones have been exhausted and how the body you know, is he actually using the fat in order to make energy? Um, this is a, a generalization. Yeah? Then each of the cases may have to be, you know, assessed individually. Um, whereas the beta-hydroxybutyrate, unless there is a medical condition in which you want to have very high levels of it, uh, or good levels of it, anything you know, just under a millimolar up to whatever uh, someone has, two, three, four millimolar, that could be, you know, a good, um, a good, a good level to actually have. Then in some scenarios, you may want to have a little buffer in the blood. Um, that case, beta-hydroxybutyrate, as I said, prior training, uh, or prior a long hike or whatever, then or a bike ride. Uh, if I if I'm fasted, 
um, and I want to go for a long bike ride, ideally I want to see a little bit of beta-hydroxybutyrate in, in, in blood and decent to good level of acetone. Okay, so the beta-hydroxybutyrate in the blood is kind of a good marker of what's available in the blood for usage. And you said that, um, you know, the brain preferentially uses that. So if you're going to go through a period of like uh, intense brain activity, then it might be beneficial to have elevated blood glu- or blood ketones, I'm sorry. And then similarly, if you're going to uh, prepare for some type of athletic event, it might be beneficial to have some elevated blood ketones. And then when you're actually curious about the usage of those, then measuring those breath ketones and seeing those uh, being used efficiently. And then there's also urine or, you know, keto sticks or, or whatever that you can pee on. Um, what, how do those play a role? Um, so it seems that that is the unused acetoacetate which is released in urines and uh, common trend of thinking um, seems to uh, point out that as the body becomes more and more efficient in utilizing fats as a primary source of energy is going to let less and less acetoacetate in urine so you may find traces but isn't really reflective. So at times I had uh, either myself or patients with reasonably good levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate, very good levels or medium to good levels of um, acetone, which is a reflection of acetoacetate, or the used acetoacetate, um, and yet uh, the keto sticks were actually barely, uh, barely pink. Uh, and the more efficient seems, and the longer someone has been on a um, um, fat-adapted state, the least you're able to detect acetoacetate in urines. So ideally, we want to test acetoacetate in blood, and that will give us okay. a completely different new paradigm of questions <laughs> that we can ask about the correlation that, that you know the behavior that there is between the two between beta-hydroxybutyrate and acetoacetate excellent um, that actually cor- corroborates with my personal experimentation as well earlier this year i decided to do a period of very targeted and measured ketogenesis and i was already eating a fairly high fat diet Uh, with fairly low carbs and compared to the standard recommendations at least. And without being too neurotic about it, I'm always kind of experimenting with some aspect of tweaking health and performance. And from the nutrition side, I'm pretty much stick to an evolutionary biology template for most things. But that's another story, so I'll digress. But uh, So I cut carbs down to around 30 grams per day mostly from nutrient-dense vegetables. I added in uh, MCTs and coconut oil for the ketogenic effects of uh, medium-chain triglycerides. And within the first few days, urine ketones started to spring up, and blood ketones were basically negligible um, in those first few days. And after a few days, 
uh, urine ketones started to uh, titrate back down to trace levels and blood levels actually started to increase to around two millimoles in the morning and a bit lower than that in the evening. And uh, I started to notice that when I consumed more carbohydrates on any given day, let's say up to 50 grams, for example, that the urine levels of ketones would actually jump back up and a little on the following morning. And perhaps that the, you know, the extra glucose that was being uh, introduced was elevating the glucose substrate available and my body was preferentially using that over the available ketones. Is that sound feasible? Well, in a way, how I think of it is given the same metabolic demand that the body has uh, to maintain energy, balance, and at the same time, you know, make up for extra energy requirements like training, stress response, working, children, children may have a lot to do with that. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, 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 if the body, all of these are precursors for energy, glucose and ketones, and obviously fat for beta oxidation. So um, there seems to be a, a kind of, I wouldn't say a cap, but a, 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 an optimal band and uh, a guy called, an engineer called Marty Kendall and I, interestingly, came to reasonably similar uh, findings um, in relation to the levels of beta-hydroxybutyrate and the glucose sum in order to understand, uh, to give, more than understand, to give an indication of where the person metabolically is at in some cases. Um, and... All of these are substrate for energy. So, you know, acetoacetate, beta-hydroxybutyrate, glucose. So, you, 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 it's, it's fairly normal that there are some trends amongst these. Can we predict the trends? Mm, starting to have some ideas, but not all the time. We, we, basically, we don't know. We don't fully know. And I think it's, it's good to observe them. But it, it's, it's, uh, I think what you experience is totally normal. Okay. And so let's, um, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about a question that I uh, mentioned to you that a lot of people have had recently, and that is um, testing for dietary offenders or food that maybe uh, don't agree with the system and using heart rate variability testing to possibly gain a little bit of insight into that um you know could you talk a little bit about that sure sure jason um well interestingly enough um i was um i came across a couple of years ago totally by chance i was using a an ongoing um measurement uh, an ongoing uh, kind of monitoring system and is a two-site sensor that um, the patient was actually wearing. And I was noticing that something lunchtime didn't quite fit in the sense that mm, the person mentioned that she was relaxing, that she was, you know, totally okay with it, um, and she was having healthy foods. And 
obviously being a nutritionist, <laughs> the, <laughs> what people consider healthy food, um, one, is it really healthy? Um, two, it may be healthy <laughs> for the vast majority of people, but maybe your body is reacting to it. And obviously, I'm sure that you, you are aware of food allergies, food sensitivities, or just normal food reactions are, are costly and involve also you having to be on a certain type of food for a period of time, perhaps, if you want to go more advanced test. Um, if you're talking about, you know, uh, gluten, for example, is not just gluten, is what the body might confuse for gluten or glidins. So you need to do like a, you know, a, like a cross-reactivity test. Uh, so it can end up being very expensive. Right. So I kind of noticed that uh, the typical lunchtime, the person was, the, the, the heart rate was reasonably, the, the heart rate and heart rate variability was reasonably stable. And then during the lunchtime, there was the usual, you know, up and down and, you know, parasympathetic is trying to take over to try to digest the food. But then it wasn't going back to baseline afterwards. It actually kept being elevated. So I started to run some little, some little test. And I said, look, do you know what you react to? And I said, yes, I know. Okay, so wear this strap. Relax for five to ten minutes beforehand eat the food and see when, see what happens afterwards. And you can actually see really, really well, even without using an advanced piece of equipment um, like I used, um, you can use your app. Um, you, you have HRV, Elite HRV, um, and you, your apps allows to have an ongoing measurement uh, of HRV. So I, generally speaking, I, I made a person, okay, download the app and say, okay, wear the strap, relax. Ideally, if they read uh, something, as long as they keep reading roughly the same thing, <laughs> um, they relax five to minutes, eat whatever they had to eat, and then actually see where the HRV, by going back to the same activity, will actually stabilize. If he's substantially higher right. and keep being high, then obviously something in that meal has affected the person, uh, unless they were arguing. So obviously there has to be some control within the variables. It doesn't tell the person what has impacted on that meal, but then the person can start to experiment, right? Right. So if someone right. has a normal meal with, I don't know, a salad and fish and some grains, maybe my guess will go more on the grain rather than the fish and the salad. However, everyone is different. Um, so I think it's a, it's, a, it's a quick and simple way to, 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 to potentially identify some foods that can cause a sympathetic activation within the body or reduce the parasympathetic dominance that should be when we are digesting. Okay. And so this is kind of similar to the COCA test, which is like basically um, looking at just heart rate. And that was kind of a, a test that's been around for 
many years, but basically because people didn't have access to the accurate hardware and accurate, you know, apps and things that you need to measure heart rate variability. And so it's interesting to hear HR, HRV can kind of take that to the next level. But we're, what we're still talking about here is um, just kind of getting an idea if something may be potentially offending your system by keeping your heart rate variability down. And so to summarize, um, what we're talking about is uh, starting an open reading within our app, or if you could have another app or some other device, um, and just starting that reading, but you also need to, and then eating like five minutes later, and then kind of uh, measuring throughout the eating and then post eating for like at least an hour. Um, and then during that time, it's also important to, you know, if you get up and move around and exercise or something like that, you'll definitely expect to see that that will raise heart rate and, and change the results. So if you're going to do this test, it's important to, like I think you mentioned when we talked previously, to kind of sit quietly and maybe read a book or do something that's not really going to be stimulating. Yeah, yeah. Or sometimes you can take the average of your... Um, if you if if the work if the person is at work and they tend to do roughly the same thing, so I don't know at a desk and etc etc, where they, they can control the the, the the stimuli that they have from their environment. As long as they can go back and to do the same thing, then you can actually see still the variation. So they're 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 a lot easier to detect than what we think. If someone is looking for it. Um, I'm very happy to share a screen and you know show you uh, some of the ones I've done on an ongoing HIV reading. You know if it needs to be, or I can give you this slide and you can put it in the show notes or whatever. Um, okay, we'll attach the slides in the show notes over at elitehrv.com/podcast. And uh, for folks listening, if you want to see what a food sensitivity test looks like in HRV readings, then definitely head over there and check it out. Um, we'll also do our best here to kind of talk through the slides and describe what we're seeing as well. Sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. So in here, um, you can see it with the red circle, the person was kind of uh, reasonably stable, coming down, relaxing, and then post the dies nearly an hour, um, and that was a quite substantial changes, which interestingly enough didn't happen with dinner or breakfast. And we, in this case, we identified that that was the only time. In this case, were grains that the person was having, and uh, they were healthy grains, but mm, not maybe healthy for her um, and that's the typical scenario so the person had good ratio between recovery and 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 um, you know expenditure on this specific day not so good in the next day but what what I was noticing is that post um, post that meal um, she actually wasn't feeling great and in addition to that, there was some kind of that would actually affect later on even the sleep. So that that you can see there are two completely different baseline to a point that in some days that was actually the highest stress response, the highest of the stress response that she had in a day. Wow! wow. You, 
Yeah, you can do that with a normal uh, ongoing measurement with an app. So you don't have to buy, you know, a, a kind of hundreds and hundreds of, of pounds of dollars worth of actual kit. Um, you, you can take just the usual uh, strap that is precise enough to pick up RNR and intervals and heart variability. Um, I, for this kind of scenario, I use Elite HRV, uh, as mentioned to you, and I just turn it on and just let it run and then actually see what are the changes uh, comparing it like for like. Okay, and so have you seen, have you been able to kind of, uh, you know, do this frequent enough to come up with some basic like um, either percentage thresholds or absolute thresholds maybe that people could look out for saying like, uh, you know, like the COCA test is, I think if heart rate increases more than 16 beats per minute, then that might be an indication, um, you know, and then we could further refine that with uh, heart rate variability. Have you come up with any kind of like maybe percentages that you've noticed that may be in indicative? Yeah, I think the, 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 the lowest changes that starts to be noticeable is around uh, in a lead HIV. I don't know on any other apps um, that would take ongoing measurement. Um, it's around between five and seven. So anything, someone has a, a, a decent, good, high number, HIV number, HIV score, then I would probably look at seven if someone if the score is quite low uh if the rmssd is quite low then even five could actually be meaningful that is on the average of the second snapshot so but this is just to give people an indication because as 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 you amply covered in your course everything is relative to that individual so an increase of seven right. for one is less meaningful than an increase of five for another one Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And so generally what I tell people is that get, get some kind of baseline values for food testing as well. So kind of like if you're going to do this, then a great way, in my opinion, to kind of rule out some of those and refine the uh, accuracy of your testing is to, you know, measure, uh, kind of write down or take a picture or, or log the foods that you eat and see if sometimes that it behaves one way and other times it behaves another way. And then you could say, well, you know, which one of these is the offender? And then maybe you can start uh, narrowing it down that way. And then I think ultimately, uh, you know, in another podcast actually that we recorded with Dr. Eldred Taylor, he says that people can be sensitive to something that it everyone thinks is healthy, like broccoli, right? And so... Uh, you know, you don't know because it's so individual that broccoli may be the thing for you that can really set you off. And this is just trying to help find what it might be. But then you might want to do further testing by eliminating that food and then reintroducing it after, you know, 30, 60 days or something or doing blood testing or, or something along those lines. Yeah, precisely. And also... The fact that the body is reacting to it does not necessarily mean that it's a bad thing. Uh, that's important to note too. Well, yeah, because sometimes I think people reacting to garlic. Okay, let's assume the person has 
a fungal infection in the gut, the reaction can be reasonably pronounced, but yet garlic may be the very thing that they actually need to have in their diet in order to minimize fungal gut infections. I'm saying this as an example. Um, whereas if someone has a substantial reduction of HIV uh, and increases sympathetic response onto, uh, uh, for example, grains, might be a different thing. I'm not saying that everyone should be grain-free. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, many people are totally fine with grains. Um, but even that, there has to be, it has to be put into contest. So if someone reacts to broccoli, what would broccoli have? Okay, high level of certain type of antioxidant. Is that going to stimulate certain liver pathway? These liver pathway are perhaps detoxifying too much. So maybe a lower version of that food can actually promote HIV and health benefits, but in too high a level, then can be too much for the body to deal with. So even that has to be put into context, in my view. Yeah, it's important to recognize that quantity does indeed play a role. Um, for example, I've noticed that high quantities of FODMAPs tend to affect me pretty strongly, and apparently many other people as well. I'll put a link to those in the show notes. Uh, but smaller quantities seem to be fine for me. And similarly, as we've been discussing, just having excess energy substrate in the blood could be inflammatory in and of itself. Uh, so something like a sweet potato, which may be benign for most people in most cases, could be bad if you sat down and ate several large ones and, you know, subsequently caused your blood sugar to go through the roof. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's just that I'd, I've noticed that <clears throat> sometimes people may not may take things literally on what they hear and I think everything has to be put back into context. I believe you have some one-of-a-kind data regarding the 24-7 or continuous HRV monitoring, you know, with the adhesive-based sensors like the first beat um, and the relationship between that and the snapshot HRV values that are taken from smartphone apps typically first thing in the morning. Um, not many people are willing to be the guinea pig and be hooked up to all sorts of devices for long periods of time to gather this type of data. So what have you learned by comparing the continuous HRV readings and the snapshot HRV readings? Yeah, I mean, the because <clears throat> I was wondering, okay, so the correlation could be right as long as I select <clears throat> the same snip of time that I would select in both snapshot and obviously at that time, in a continuous uh, reading. But I thought, well, how about the resources? Why someone would measure HIV on 24 hours? So mainly is to actually have a look at how the environment affects the person. So what what is within the environment that affects the person's HIV, i.e. sympathetic activation? So uh, then someone can make a decision, actually me speaking on the phone to that person, then that has caused to me the biggest stress in the day. 
And then all that type of training, it took ages to recover, the sleep was poor. And so the snapshot will give us the baseline of where we are at on that specific day. So that will tell us where we are at. Um, whereas the ongoing measurement, they can, it can, if connected to, to a diary, of course, uh, it can pinpoint the fluctuation in the day and then we can start to make a relation of what affects the most. So uh, certain things that affect me the most may not affect someone else the most, but it could be, you know, exactly the opposite. So what I've noticed was, <clears throat> I find really interesting because if we see an overall kind of trend of resources, maybe not so much in a day-to-day, -day, but over a period of a week or two weeks, actually the trends were very, very similar. So I'm happy to actually um, <clears throat> show you again um, within the actual screen. Hey folks, in the post-production, we decided that it was a bit too difficult to follow the screen sharing session via audio. So even better, I've posted a YouTube video on the show notes page of Alessandro exploring the topics even deeper while showing his screen. So uh, it's really great uh, presentation, and you can find that over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast on the show notes page for this episode. And one point that Alessandro drives home is that continuous monitoring allows you to see which events specifically throughout the day have the greatest impacts on your stress levels. So, you know, both in the acute situation when it happens and the residual effect throughout the day. Um, and the discussion also quickly leads into the power of context and keeping a diary of potentially relevant events throughout the day to help really determine what is moving the needle for you. And this is where we'll pick up the conversation again. A quick hint, the things that move the needle the most are quite often very different from person to person. And we'll let Alessandro tell us more. That, I think, brings our attention back to the individuality, um, which is one of the things that I, I thought in your course was brilliant. Um, I, I, so the footprint left by a simple half an hour, well, I think it was around 35 minutes journey on the tube was way longer than what I my body kind of shown being completely stationed in traffic. So still in London, it's still the same city is, you know, I am just comparing the two, but I compared the two multiple times. It's not, it wasn't just, you know, a kind of unicorn scenario kind of thing. And I thought, well, what was going on in here? And then you start to think the whys. Okay. So why? Okay. Well, I, 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 I enjoy driving. Okay, stationary is not exactly driving. However, technically, it's still driving. Uh, <laughs> practically, it isn't. But then I listen to podcasts. I maybe hear from friends or, or I don't know. Whatever is in that environment is having a much, much less impact, less of an impact on my sympathetic activation. 
someone else that they hate driving they and they love the tube then it's just gonna be different so uh, it, it's really interesting to see the sympathetic activation at that time but also the footprint that that leaves behind that to me is even right. not even more important but is definitely something to highly consider yeah and you know that's it's really interesting now that people have the tools to be able to do these types of experiments on themselves because like you mentioned somebody may hate driving and have the opposite uh reaction actually and then you know a couple more examples of that is uh there's definitely applications for health for this i mean you've mentioned that you're you really enjoy presenting and that type of thing. It's a, it's definitely a, a positive stress similar to exercise for you. But what you have noticed is that when you have a series of speaking events or speaking engagements all in a row, it's the same as if you had, uh, you know, a jujitsu competition or something in the effects that it, the lasting effects that it has on your body. And, um, so that's just, it's fascinating to see that. And even though you enjoy it, it's positive. It actually does have a systemic and residual impact that you need to recover from. <laughs> the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm smiling is because I can pinpoint which groups of practitioners I enjoy the most, <laughs> given by the location <laughs> and cross-referencing <laughs> the HRV. <laughs> <laughs> which is really sad <laughs> but unfortunately it's true <laughs> <laughs> so if i do a lecture with a certain group of people in a certain city i know my hiv is gonna i i don't know it's gonna drop but there is a there is a, a likelihood that i want it will take me longer to recover and many times I actually think, okay, if I'm lecturing in that city, I might not be able to train afterwards, even if I get to class in time. And that's that's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that is. And I'm sure now all of your uh, the groups that you lecture to are going to say, I want to see your data afterwards to see if you like yeah, us. Or I want to see your data. See if you like you don't like us. Yeah, precisely. <laughs> <laughs> so along those same lines, um, I was just talking to Daniel Plews and Paul Larson, uh, who are now called the uh, officially the Plews and Prof, and you're familiar with both of those guys. So they... they they mentioned kind of offhandedly in the podcast episode that I recorded with them that their athlete, uh, uh, specifically Dan's athlete, I think, Tim Van Berkel, he's one of the top uh, triathlete competitors in the world. And they kind of mentioned offhandedly that they actually, uh, you know, travel has a huge impact on the health and readiness to perform. And that there's all of these kind of individual uh, ideas of when should the triathlete arrive a week before competition and try to recover for the week or they should they try to arrive two days before and just kind of like deal with it or you know I don't know all of the specifics because I'm not as into Ironman and triathlon as they are but um, but he just kind of offhandedly mentioned that they actually arrive later than most of the other athletes because that seems to work better for Tim and they wouldn't know that unless they were actually measuring 
um, heart rate variability and other, uh, you know, aspects of performance, which kind of is just another example of, we've talked about some of the health side. It also is applicable on the athletic side that you can do some of that experimentation to see what has the biggest residual effect. Yeah. I mean, if you roughly have an idea on how the body will potentially react to something, then you can make your judgment calls. So I think in that, speci- in, in that specific case, and the way how I would look at it, would be either you arrive there later in order for the HRV not to drop long enough, or arrive way earlier in order to recuperate it. And this is only, you know, this is only experimentation. If someone knows that he's very deeply affected, there may be, you know, like uh, Paul uh, mentioned, um, that would be my instinct. However, for certain people, like for me lecturing for certain lecture, I want to go and get there way in advance, stabilize, go through bits and pieces, feel really comfortable in my environment, in that environment, uh, recuperate the energy, especially with jet lag, and well, I don't suffer from jet lag, but you know, from from the changes within the environment, and try to adapt, you know, to to the new environment as quickly as I possibly can, and that can take a few days. So for certain things, I want to be there very very early. For some others, I just want to get there the day before and don't allow that drop in resources because I just haven't had the time to drop it that much. That makes sense. Right. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, it's like show up, get the job done and get out and then recover after you're back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or get that early, early and then, you know, just recuperate it and then start, you know, on a fresh. I think it also depends by the outlook of the individual. Right. So I think there's a lot of information here that people can kind of digest and play with. And I think that we'll uh, maybe we'll get some questions back from folks that uh, they can contact us through the podcast page and things. And then um, I know that uh, Dr. Alessandro, um, what, let's, let's wrap up, but maybe you can tell people, uh, where they can find you and, you know, I'm sure that, you know, people will have questions. So, uh, you know, where, where could people find you? Sure. Um, I tend to uh, use a website. I'm just about to publish a couple of videos. Uh, is alessandroferretti.co.uk. Really simple. Um, they can go in with their guards down. Um, I'm not selling anything. Um, eventually, we'll look at courses, but you know, not not for the time. Um, and I try to keep people uh, up to date on what I'm up to. Uh, and you know, there, there is an email section. I'm not currently seeing any patients, uh, and I have a few that I've referred that we're doing studying and researching on. Um, but if he's a question in relation to what we've been speaking about today, yeah, most welcome. Uh, just click on contact us, uh, through the, um, you know, through the website, um, or via, you know, via yourself if he's in relation to this, uh, to this podcast, and I'll be you know, happy to share, uh, what I, you know, what is my, my view on it. We'll definitely post links to you, your contact info 
and the additional notes, images, and video from this episode over in the show notes at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. And next time we can go deeper into some of the experimentation. Um, you know, I've, I mentioned briefly that I've done some of my own experimentation care, uh, comparing HRV, blood glucose, and ketones. So we can talk a little deeper into that. And we could also talk more about the big um, monitoring project that you've got coming up, which is going to produce some really fascinating data. Absolutely, because uh, interestingly enough, uh, we we are actually uh, I, I'm going to do this uh, uh, this next project with Paul Larson as well. <laughs> so is 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 a few of oh, us. Great. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to do uh, that, um, and the person we're going to have two continuous glucose monitoring plus the snapshots to actually check how do they correlate with each other. So yeah, I'll be very happy to share that. That that'll be cool. Hey folks, Jason here for a quick note before signing off. First, as always, you can find the notes and links to everything that we've discussed over at EliteHRV.com slash podcast. And second, we've got more great guests lined up to discuss many different topics here in the coming weeks. And again, I am honored to be able to host this show and receive such positive feedback and encouragement from you all. We already have everyone from doctors to Olympians to folks just optimizing their own health uh, that are all listening and, and sending nice messages. As podcast host Rob Wolf once said, Six listeners can't be wrong. <laughs> um, so lastly, if you get the chance to stick a short review over on iTunes, that will really help continue to propel the show forward, and it'll help attract more fantastic guests that will all be able to share their knowledge with us. So please hit up iTunes or use the review link provided in the description of this episode. Um, enjoy your week. See you next time. This is Jason Moore signing out. Sponsored by HRVCourse.com. Truly understand the science and mechanisms behind heart rate variability and how to apply them towards your goals. Use discount code ELITEPODCAST for 10% off your first HRV course. That's all one word, ELITEPODCAST. Visit HRVCourse.com to get access today.